It certainly is good to be together. Sometimes I think pastors take for granted that people show up on Sunday mornings. And so I want to thank you for being here, not just for my own sake, although I am encouraged by it, but for one another. One of the hopes for our church um, is that as people come into this place, that they they feel as though they are seen and they belong. And sometimes that comes through really subtle things like, hey, how's it going? Or an embrace or just kind of a 30-second conversation where you could perhaps hear what's going on in somebody's life. But I hope that you find that as you engage with the life of our church that you don't just show up and kind of enjoy whatever it is that you enjoy about the service, but that you become a tool that God is utilizing to embrace and extend his sort of embrace to the people that come into this place. Um, I was just, I was talking to a, a friend yesterday over dinner that it is crazy. The, uh, he was asking me like, how's it going in your transition to your new role? And I was thinking about the week that I have ahead and it, the number of different things going on is just crazy. And the number of things going on in people's lives in this church is astonishing. And the only way really that we can make it through sometimes is because people come around us and carry us and encourage us and carry our burdens with us. And that is what the church is supposed to be doing. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to be starting a new series this week titled Co-Creators, Why Work and Rest Matter. And that my hope of this series is that whether you're a student or retired, whether you are self-employed or not employed at all, whether you're at the start of the career, your career, in the middle of it, at the end of it, whether you love your job or hate your job, whether you're considering a career change or totally entrenched in your current career, that you would sort of find something helpful in understanding why work and rest matter to you. We're not just talking about jobs in this series. We're talking about work, which we're going to unpack a little bit this morning. Um, but this morning's message really is to lay a little bit of groundwork for the whole series. So I'm going to tell you a story about how I got fired from my first job. And then we'll talk about an ancient creation story that isn't found in the Bible. Then we'll talk about the Bible's creation story. I'll share an anecdote about when I worked for Mickey Mouse. And then we'll wrap things up with a story about Trader Joe's and a parking lot attendant. So it's going to be awesome. It's going to be so good. It's going to be exactly what you were thinking it was going to be this morning, right? Well, I was fired from the first job I ever held, and I quit the second job I ever had in a month. Um, people told me for my first job that I was laid off, um, but it never felt that gentle. It always felt like somebody just kicked me out of the door. It was, I just graduated high school, and it was that summer between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, and per my family's policy, I needed to be gainfully employed if I was gonna have a roof over my head. And so I went and I sent in applications. This is the most awkward, uncomfortable experience to do for the first time, to walk into a business and ask them for a job application, because they weren't looking for you, but you are looking for them. But I applied to a number of different places, and I, truthfully, at 17 years old, was shocked to discover that most businesses were not trying to hire somebody without any employable skills and with no previous work experience. It was hard finding a job, but I eventually landed a job working as a host in a restaurant. Uh, a friend of mine worked there and kind of hooked me up with this gig. And after about three days of training and two weeks of working, I came in for my shift, lunch shift, four hours. And when I came in, the, the manager and assistant manager asked me to just come into the office. 
And they sat me down, and I had no idea what was going on, but I knew it wasn't going to be a good thing. And they informed me that because Mimi's Cafe had opened up across the street, they had not had the business this summer that they were anticipating, and so they were going to have to let me go. And I was very disoriented, and they said, yeah, for your final paycheck, we'll just pay you in cash and coinage, and we'll be all good, and you can leave, and you don't have to work your shift right now. So I gathered my things, and uh, I started walking home because I didn't have a car at the time. And, but strangely enough, about a week later, I went to go visit my friend who worked in the restaurant, and there was this beautiful young lady who was working as their new host at the restaurant. And I thought, you just made a mistake in hiring me. You, <laughs> you needed somebody. But I still needed a summer job, family policy and all. And so I began to apply to different places, and the only thing I could find that summer was a job at Target, which doesn't sound that bad, except the position was titled Overnight Team Member, which sounds so much nicer than Graveyard Shelf Stalker. (laughs) And being the new guy, I was given the privilege, really, to stock all of the aisles that nobody else wanted to stock. And so the shampoo and conditioners, I got to stock every night at one o'clock in the morning in Target. And trust me, when you do that, you have a whole new appreciation for the people that do that kind of work. And you have a whole new frustration when you see people just like, I don't need this anymore and plopping it down on a random shelf. But I work that job for a month, from 11.30 at night to 8 o'clock in the morning. And being so young, my colleagues, we'll call them, would often remark to me in those dark hours, let this job remind you why you need to work hard in school. And so a month later, I quit the job to move away to college, but I found with so many of my other jobs that happened in that, that sort of season of life, this phrase constantly coming up in, my, in conversation with people. Let this job remind you why you need to work hard in school. In college, I had an on-campus job in the cafeteria. I washed the dishes for all of my classmates in the cafeteria. And the head of the cafeteria would sometimes jokingly tell us as we washed off the half-eaten hot dogs, off plates, and wiped leftover mayonnaise that were left on the plates and dressings out of bowls, he would come into the dish room and make the same remark. Let this job remind you of why you need to work hard in school. One summer when I was home after college and I needed summer job, family policy and all, and I worked construction for a family friend who had a pretty sizable contracting firm. He didn't actually need me to work for him. He was just doing me a favor by employing me that summer. And probably to say I worked construction is the greatest overstatement in the world. I, he just had me go to work sites and push a broom and kind of walk around and give me a paycheck. But sometimes I would arrive on a work site in the four, at 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning, and the foreman, you know, would joke me with his coffee there, and I'm coming half asleep. He would remark to me the same thing. Let this job remind you why you need to work hard in school. What they were trying to say was, don't get stuck doing work that makes you feel miserable. Dedicate yourself to find work that you enjoy. But what I often heard them saying, and the filter through which I heard that statement, was avoid this kind of work. What I often heard them saying was certain kinds of work, like the one that you're doing right now, doesn't matter as other kinds of work. And so you need to pursue work that actually matters. 
And this morning, what I, I want you to know is just a simple truth as we launch this series, is that the biblical witness is that regardless of what you do, your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. You see, unfortunately, it seems as though much of how we think about work is not informed by the biblical witness, but by another ancient story. You see, Christianity doesn't possess, this is interesting, perhaps some of you didn't know this, Christianity doesn't possess the only ancient creation story. In fact, there's lots of creation stories that we find in ancient literature. And one of those that was most popular uh, in ancient times was one known as the Enuma Elish. It was the creation story of the great empire of Babylon. And here's a quick Bible study tip for you. One of the ways to sort of unearth what the Bible is all about is comparing sort of ancient literature to biblical literature. And you find that as these things diverge from one another, the message of what the Bible is trying to teach is just so much deeper and richer than just reading the text by itself, as, it, as if it existed just alone by itself. And in this creation story, the Babylonian creation story known as the Enuma Elish, there's this really different sort of beginning of the universe that this story tells. You see, the creation of the universe and of human people stands in this story in stark contrast to that found in the Christian Bible. In the Enuma Elish, we find that there are many gods who are warring with one another for supremacy. They want to be the ultimate god, right? Think of any modern-day reality TV show, right? Like, we all want to be the winner at the end of this competition. This is going on in this ancient creation story. It's a winner-take-all contest. And one of the gods named Marduk, which is an awesome name for a child, I think. But we're not going to... That would be terrible to name our next kid Marduk. It's not a very Christian thing. Marduk is awesome, though. That's a great name. But one of the gods named Marduk sort of emerges from this story as the most powerful of the gods by killing, essentially, his great, great, great grandmother, if you will, right? And so his, his grand, great, 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 great grandmother's name was Tiamat. And after killing Tiamat, this is violent, so excuse me for a second. After killing his great, great, great grandmother, he uses her dead corpse, to create the heavens and the earth. He uses her eyes to create rivers in the world. Uh, the big problem, though, with creating the earth is that now that you have created the earth, Marduk has created the earth, is somebody has to care for the earth, right? And who wants to do that anyways? Nobody wants to come and sort of work and create culture and fill it and sustain the earth. And so Marduk, in all of his wisdom, after creating the heavens and the earth from this bloody, godly war, he decides, well, none of us gods want to work the earth, so we'll make people. We'll make people. They'll be our slaves, and they will tend to our creation. See, he's kind of in this conundrum. It's like when you buy a house for the first time, and you realize, like, oh, my gosh, somebody has to maintain this thing. Somebody's got to mow the lawn. Somebody's got to sort of take care of the flower beds. Somebody has to fix plumbing problems and toilet issues and all sorts of problems in the house and you certainly don't want to do it, right? So we pay people to do it. This is what's going on in this ancient story is that the gods have created humans to do the chores they don't want to do. Work, after all, in this story is miserable. And the interesting thing about this creation story is it tells us two things that are of concern for us today. First, is that in this ancient creation story, we find that the world is made as a sort of afterthought. 
There's no intention. There's no design. It's just sort of like, ah, we got this corpse, this thing, so we'll just kind of mix it together, and boom, here comes the heavens and the earth. But the second thing that we find in the story is that work is perceived in this culture as miserable. (laughs) That is, work is to be avoided at all costs. Hence, the gods pass the burden onto the shoulders of their new human creatures. And this view of work, that it's miserable and awful, and we're just sort of getting through it, is why so many in our society and world today anxiously anticipate that glorious day known as retirements. Retirement is seen as a sort of withdrawal from having to do work, and now you can actually enjoy your life. Work is awful and miserable and burdensome, and you grit your teeth and you just get through it. I just can't wait till there's nothing else for me to do in terms of work. But this story, this Enuma Elish, this ancient creation story, views both creation and work very differently from the one that we discover in our Bibles. You see, if you read the biblical story of creation, right there at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapters one and two, we discover a God who properly orders the world. The creation of the heavens and the earth isn't haphazardly put together in the aftermath of some cosmic event. Rather, what we discover in Genesis one and two is a God who is a master artisan. He is a craftsman. He is intentionally designing and putting together a good creation. In fact, the whole structure of Genesis 1 sort of illuminates and highlights this point, is that the whole Genesis 1 is structured in such a way to show sort of orderliness and design and structure. See, the entire chapter reads as this sort of poem with repeated phrases over and over and over again. We see in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters and it was so. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And we see this repeated throughout the chapter. God said, and it was so. God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning. Organized, designed, intentional, and good. Of particular interest, though, for us this morning, perhaps, is how the Bible describes God's creative action. In Genesis 2.1, sort of summarizes God's creative work. I think I have this on the screen. Genesis 2.1, there it is. Sort of at the end of the creation story, the, the writer of Genesis says this, is by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. The Hebrew word translated as work here is the word melecha. Turn to your neighbor and say melecha. No, you need more cha. Say melecha, melecha. Try it again. There you go. There you go. That's a little bit better. We're brushing up on your Hebrew this morning. But what's interesting is that this word melecha is the same word that the Bible and the Hebrew scriptures use to describe the ordinary work of people. You see, one would expect in the creation story to have some sort of over-the-top word to describe the extraordinary, glorious work of the universe and all of creation. You would expect there to be exceptional language to describe God's work because it is so much different and set apart from our own work as people. But what we get in Genesis is a word that describes God's work 
It's the same word that describes the work of like tradespeople, of janitors, of teachers, of farmers, of secretaries. And what comes through here in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God works like ordinary people work. And the significance of this is fully felt when we read about God's creation of humankind and of people. God speaks this way when he creates his people. He says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. You see, in the biblical account of the creation of people, people are described as being formed and made in God's image and in God's likeness. And part of what that means to be in God's image, to be created in God's likeness, is that we, like God, work. This is especially clear in God's unique instruction to humanity when he says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Be, increase, fill, subdue. These are instructions to work. And in contrast to the chaotic creative act that burdens humanity with the undesirable task of working, the biblical account reveals a God who brings order and creates people to share in his orderly work. The scriptures, that is, from the beginning, bear witness to the truth that we are created to work. Let me say that again. We are created to work. Work, as it turns out, is foundational to what it means to be a person. You need only ask people who live in nursing homes or who have physical limitations or ask some people who have retired and regretted after three months of retirement is that it gets sort of old sleeping in and watching daytime TV all day. It's not very appealing to us. That's because we are created and designed to do good work. But we are, though, not just called to work by God, we are called and created to work in service to others. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. You see, the circumstances in your life, including your work, is a place in which you are called and assigned to serve God. See, the fundamental Christian call is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians is that each of you has been called and assigned to your specific circumstances, to your specific life, to do this very thing of loving our neighbors. And our work becomes a means by which we love our neighbors. It's not just something that we endure it's something that we do for the sake of others. The world needs people, by the way, who do their work for the sake of others and not just for their own advancement and pleasure. There's a sociologist from Berkeley named Robert Bea who wrote a really famous book uh, known as Habits of the Heart, and he writes this towards the end of the book. He says, to make a real difference, there would have to be a reappropriation of the idea of vocation or calling. This is the key statement. A return to the idea 
work as a contribution to the good of all, not merely as a mean, means to one's own advancement. Let me read that last part again. We need to understand vocation and calling as a return to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. That is, people need to see their work not merely as something that boasts their status or allows them to succeed or achieve or kind of for their own financial gain, but something that we do for the sake of others in the world. When I came home for summers from college, I found a really sweet gig working as a valet for Mickey Mouse. I, I worked as a valet for Disney's Grand California Hotel and Spa. Um, this was a really nice gig to find because it turns out that Disneyland needs more employees in the summer and Christmas time, and I needed employment in the summer and Christmas time, and so we were a match made in heaven. So I worked there for about five years. Hotel, to say the very least, is the nicest on the resort. It is also the most expensive hotel on the Disney resort in Anaheim. My family and I actually were just there a couple of weekends ago, and we walked over into the hotel, and there's still some guys that I worked with who work there. And they informed us that this past summer, the lowest in room was going for $7.50 a night. Yeah, it's that kind of hotel. <laughs> and let's just say, like working out of the valet in one of those hotels, we, we made in the summertime sometimes probably a lot better money than most of you sitting in this room. We parked cars for the rich and famous, no doubt. I've driven more cars of celebrities than I can possibly remember or count, and some of those people, they, they got lots of money, and I love when they gave it to me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> the most generous celebrity, I'll speak well of him, Carl Malone, the mailman, for the NBA player for the Jazz and the Lakers. Dude, he, he, he and his family, they, they're generous. They are generous. Christmas Eve, here's just a random story. Christmas Eve one year, Carl Malone was there with a buddy, and he tipped me $300. And I was like, Merry Christmas, mailman. <laughs> but with the opportunity to make, you know, close to about $200 a day in cash, everyone developed a sense of who was going to be a big tipper and who wasn't going to be a big tipper. And it's really not hard to, to sort of determine that when you have sort of $150,000 Mercedes rolling up the driveway versus the 150-year-old minivan pulling up the driveway is finding which of these two guests are going to tip you, you know. I remember a particular guest that arrived one summer. The driveway of the hotel was moderately busy, so some of the valets were assisting guests and some valets were just kind of standing around waiting for something to do. And up came on the driveway this old Dodge caravan, something like this clearly worn, and all of the valets walked away and left me standing there to be the only valet to assist them. And so I went through my normal routine of greeting. Welcome to Disney's Grand California Hotel and Spa, right? I do the whole spiel. I gave them all of the information that they wanted. I offered to check their bags, which they wanted their bags checked in the hotel. And so I went into the Bellman's sort of area, and I grabbed my card, and I came out, and I opened this, the sliding door of the van, and I saw that their luggage was all packed in those 50-gallon black trash cans, uh, liners. And I thought to myself, there's no chance I'm getting a tip here. There's no chance. 
And I loaded the, the bags, literally bags, onto the car, and the kids and, the, and this man's wife rushed into the hotel. The lobby is absolutely glorious if you've ever been there. They were so excited and so happy to be at Disneyland. And as I unloaded the luggage and talked to the dad, he shared with me that his family had been saving for three years to take their kids on this trip. Oh, I don't know why I'm like emotional about that. And so I, I loaded his bags onto the car, you know, and I pushed it in. There was no tip. And he thanked me, you know, and I gave him a proper handshake and I wished his family well. And to this day, he's one of the, the few guests that I even remember coming into there, my five years of experience, because there's something about this family that just he sacrificed and gave so that he could have this experience. And it was on us to give them the most phenomenal experience that his family could have on vacation because they didn't have a lot. You see, when the objective of our work is for our own gain, we walk away from moments where we can actually make a difference, perhaps in a, the smallest, slightest sort of way for somebody and for some families life that we're interacting with in that moment. See, when it's not about our own gain, when it's not about the tip that we give, when it's not about what we, we have to sort of receive in this moment, but for the sake and service of our others, it, it changes the approach that we make to our work. And in so doing, we, we begin to offer meaningful moments in the lives of people that we interact with when we approach our work as a calling from God that we do for the sake of others, our job becomes more than a job and our work becomes more than just work. It becomes what we call a vocation. A vocation is work that we're called to do and we do it for the sake of others. You see, God has wired and called you from the beginning of creation to do good work. God has called and assigned you to live and obey him in your current life's circumstances. And when you view your work and your life in this way, it changes everything. It removes the limitations of our work from the arena of just being a job. And suddenly the whole of our life becomes an opportunity to live our vocation, to live and do good work in the world. You see, for some of you, you your work is that you have been called and assigned by God to be an engineer or work for an insurance company. Yes, I'm talking about Will and Scott. And every day you interact with people and you work on projects and, and your work becomes an enhancement for those who are gonna benefit from the fruit of your labor. And sometimes that work looks really boring. It's sitting in on meetings and it's responding and writing emails. But when we do it for the sake of others, we begin to make a difference in the midst of our work. For some of your work, you work in agriculture and you have been called and assigned by God to properly grow food and organize its distribution so that our community can eat every single day. Others of you work in the ever crazy world of education. You deal with parents and administrators and crazy kids and awesome kids and you are instilling values and cultivating character and developing the intellectual life of our children and our world and society. And God has called and assigned you to do this work for their sake, not for your own. Some of you are retired or you have serious physical limitations and, and your work might be like the work of Fern Carlson. I got a visit a couple weeks ago and as I sat there in her home she told me about her work that she does every single day for our church. She sits in her chair and she prays for hours for our church. She said, I pray for you, pastor, 
every day. And I pray for your, your wife by name. She knew Paige and Levi, though she's not been here on a Sunday morning since I've been here. And she prays, and this is her work that she does every single day. In addition, some of you do work as moms and dads and brothers and sisters and grandmas and grandpas and community members and board members. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And this all is good work that God has called and assigned for you to do in this season of life. And you ought to do it for the sake of those you work for and with, not for your own gain. Your work matters to God. And God wants to matter to your work. And regardless of what you do, big or small, pleasurable or not, we as a church and as followers of Jesus have an opportunity to respond to the call of the gospel to work in service of others every day of our lives. And you have the opportunity to make a difference every, every day of your life. Almost a year ago, I went to hear um, a pastor speak in LA, and he told a, a story of his favorite Trader Joe's uh, grocery store. Anybody shop at Trader Joe's here? Man, I'm a big fan. Love the Joe's. That's where his family does all their grocery shopping, and like most of LA, and seemingly like most Trader Joe's, the parking lot situation is an absolute mess, right? There's just no, no way around it, is that Trader Joe's parking lots are infamously just chaotic. There's accidents happening all of the time. But one of the Trader Joe's that this pastor shops at has a parking lot attendant sitting at the entrance of the lot to make sure the people who are coming in and out of there are actually going to Trader Joe's because it's in the heart of L.A., and the parking lot attendant, his job is he just gives you a ticket when you arrive into the parking lot, and then when you leave, he takes your ticket, gives a ticket, takes a ticket, checks your receipt from Trader Joe's, give a ticket, take a ticket. And he sits there, the entrance of the parking lot on a stool, under the umbrella, just giving tickets, taking tickets. But he does more than just give tickets and take tickets. As a pastor described, he said, when you arrive in the parking lot, you are greeted by the jolliest, warmest greeting that you can possibly imagine. It's always the same two statements. How have you been? It's good to see you. Every time you show up, the parking lot attendant, you, you, you drive in. He's like, hey, how's it going? How have you been? It's good to see you. And he fist bumps you, right? Every time you drive into the parking lot, if there's kids in the car, he fist bumps all of the kids in the car how have you been? It's good to see you. The pastor, when he was describing this parking lot attendant, described him as the death star of positivity. Right? This parking lot attendant apparently has that ability of warmth and friendliness. You've had people, you've interacted with people like this, right? Where regardless of what's going on in your day, you just feel a little bit uplifted by their smile and it's just like magnetic and it draws you in and makes you think maybe life isn't so bad after all. How have you been? It's good to see you. As the pastor described this man, he said, sometimes my wife and I will go to the grocery store at Trader Joe's and I'll start driving to this Trader Joe's. It's my favorite Trader Joe's. And there is a Trader Joe's closer to our house that we could go to. But I just want to see this parking lot attendant. And he said his wife always turns to him and says, are we going to go see your friend today? And he's like, absolutely. You know, he's just so excited to see just a parking lot attendant. And as he shared this story in this talk that he was giving. He said he, he shared this story at another setting 
speaking gig sort of in LA. And after the speaking gig, you know, there's 30 different Trader Joe's, I looked it up online, in sort of LA and upwards of about 10, 11 million people who live in LA County. And after a speaking gig of him sharing this story, he said he had tons of people come up to him sharing that they drive out of their way to see the parking lot attendant in Trader Joe's too. And what does he do for his work? Give a ticket, take a ticket. Give a ticket, take a ticket. Who knew that such a simple, redundant job could bring so much joy to so many people in LA? It's not complex work. It's monotonous, it's repetitive over and over and over. Give a ticket, take a ticket, give a ticket, take a ticket, and yet, this man is known in LA for being the parking lot attendant in Trader Joe's. I wonder sometimes what it would be like to be in a church that this is how the world and our city described the way that we went about our work at Powerhouse Church. Wouldn't that be something? People went out of our way, out of their way, sort of cross our paths. They could have gone to anybody, but because the way that we serve because we've decided to take a posture and orientation for the sake of others in the world, they come to us for work. Wouldn't it be something if we could be this kind of people? As we continue in our series in the weeks to come, these two foundational truths we need to hold on to, church. You have been called to do work. You have to receive that call, and you need to do it for the sake of others. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are so grateful (laughs) that you have called us to do good work. And my prayer for our church this morning, God, is that we would be able to identify the actual work that you have called us to do. That we would rightly see the people that we work with as an opportunity to serve and to build them up and to lift them up. God, there perhaps are some sitting in this room who feel like they don't have any work that they can do meaningfully. Would you, by your spirit, lead them and direct them to a place where they can see that their lives are contributing to good work in the world? And perhaps there are some who are just so frustrated by their jobs. Would you give them new eyes to see their work in a new and a fresh way? Would would they be able to see it in a kingdom kind of way? Will we see all of the things that we do in our life, not simply as jobs or chores that we need to, that burden us, but as opportunities, God, to reveal your goodness and kindness to those we serve. Be with us this week as we seek to do good work in your name. Amen. Church, as you go from this place and do good work this week, may God reveal himself and his kindness to those that you serve. Go in his peace. Amen.